Looking up into a clear night sky and seeing the thousands of stars visible to the naked eye, it's hard not to wonder, are there other planets like ours out there? Our guest for this episode, Professor Sarah Seeger, is on a mission to discover potentially habitable planets outside our solar system. Sarah is an astrophysicist and planetary scientist at MIT. And to discover these exoplanets, she relies not only on her own brilliance, she is the recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship, otherwise known as the Genius Grant, but also on some pretty extreme collaboration across different disciplines. In the course of our conversation, we talked to Sarah about how her teams pushed beyond initial friction and how giving herself permission to fail has driven much of her success. Sarah is also the author of a memoir titled The Smallest Lights in the Universe. And we talked to her about the book and bringing her full self to work. If you're listening to this at night, take a few minutes, step outside, and get inspired by the stars above you, like your ancestors before. And then enjoy our conversation with Sarah. Thanks for listening. Sarah Seeger, welcome to the Design Better podcast. Thanks for having me. So I was just saying before we hit the record button, your book, The Smallest Lights in the Universe, was one of the best reads of 2020 for me. I really enjoyed it and should frame a little bit that your work, you're looking for exoplanets, planets outside of our solar system, and that entails a lot of different types of efforts, and we'll dig into that more. But your book is about the search for life in the universe, but it's also about the search for life here on Earth. And I wonder if you could talk to us about the parallels that you see in your work and your personal life and how they sometimes might inform one another. It sounds cliche, but life is a journey. And so are our careers, you know, and so is the exploration of space. And I think the overlapping parallel is that sometimes there are giant obstacles in front of us we have to work around. And sometimes there are great opportunities that we have to be able to recognize. And so both in my work and personal life and just thinking about space and all the wondrous things that could be out there and our path to exploring them, there are a lot of parallels that I do try to weave together in the story. The story is very intimate. And I think Aaron and I both felt that, you know, given your status and your, your level of professionalism and your career, it may have been something of a risk to publish something so personal. And we wonder if you could talk a little bit about the kind of power of being able to bring your full self to work and kind of expose things maybe that people don't often talk about. Right. That's a really deep question. Part of my goal was to inspire because there are certain subjects that, let's face it, are taboo. And one of the big ones is death. Although now during the coronavirus, it's come more to the forefront because so many people have lost someone they know in, in quite a short time frame. But there's also like depression and just falling off that cliff in your life, whatever, whenever it happens. And then there's the getting out of that and feeling empowered. And so I just really, my desire to share the story and to hope that it would resonate with some people, that was greater than my worry about like telling everyone about my personal life. But now that it's out there, it's definitely awkward because all these people know so much about me now. And it's like, it's definitely feels awkward but I do feel glad that I shared the story. And so for our listeners who haven't read the book yet, a central focus of the narrative is losing your husband to cancer and then surviving that and finding your way in your personal life. And also in parallel, all these amazing professional accomplishments that happened at the same time, which is 
quite profound. I wonder, how does the role of reflection fit into your life and maybe into your career? Because writing a book like that, it is, I mean, it's a great opportunity to just sort of look back and think, okay, here's where I've been. And in reflecting, you're also looking forward. Do you think that the exercise of reflecting changed who you are and how you work? In a small way, it did. But the big thing that happened was my first husband's illness and death. I want to give you this analogy, which imagine, uh, this is kind of how I like to see it. It's kind of extreme, but the meteorite that came crashing to Earth and eventually killed all the dinosaurs. That was a ginormous impact for life on Earth. And after those dinosaurs died, new things could flourish. Eventually, we humans, you know, were able to evolve. And so that was really the main thing. So the writing the book helped solidify it. But after like a major catastrophe, then everything shifts around, actually. So it had all happened, but I wanted to capture it in a way that could be meaningful for others. But what writing the book did, it helped me sustain some of the shifts in perspective. Did you feel like after the book was published and colleagues were reading it, like, did people see you differently or interact with you differently? So one thing is that you'll read about in the book is I'm on the autism spectrum. So it's sometimes hard for me to like read social cues and see what people are thinking. So I don't know if I can answer that one objectively. But I have had people write to me from all over, and a few of those people are colleagues. And so some of them are like, wow, I had no idea all this about you. I knew that you were so accomplished, but wow, you're actually really human, and I can resonate with part of your story. So I think it did really change a lot how people see me. I do. You just mentioned being diagnosed with autism, which I think happened in 2016. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you see collaborating with people that are at you know, different points on sort of the neurodiverse spectrum, sort of both sides. How do people best approach collaborating with you and how do you approach collaborating with others? I'm still figuring all of that out, to be honest. I do try to mentor some younger people who are also on the spectrum. And what we end up having to do is, I hope it doesn't sound too extreme for you, but we end up creating a rule book, like how to interact in certain situations. Because in the world that I live in, it's very black and white, and it's kind of cut to the core. So in this world, like, there's no small talk, there's no being nice to people. Not because you're mean, it's just, like, not a thing. It's not necessary. Just sort of want to cut to the chase and just talk about what really matters. And what goes along with that is a kind of abruptness, and it's a perceived coldness and rudeness. So we kind of have to work around that, because it doesn't foster, like, a good-feeling situation that motivates other people. So that might not be what you ask exactly, but that was the first thing that came to mind. I think being aware of it is, is the first step to making it better. Now, perhaps you know some people who, are, I mean, I'm sure you know people who are on the autism spectrum. They might not know it yet, or perhaps you don't know, but once you sort of see it, you can recognize it in others. Absolutely. Could you tell us a few of the rules in your rule book? What, what do they say? Okay, so one of them is we're often in our own little world. And where I work at MIT, one of the places is this very long corridor. We call it the infinite corridor. And sometimes like you're in your own little world and someone will go, oh, hi, hi, Sarah, or, you know, hi, Professor Seeger. And you'll be like, <gasps> and because you're in your own little world and you weren't thinking about them and they get very, very offended by that reaction. So it's like when you walk into this corridor, just sort of be aware that people are going to come up to you and what will you say? Another rule is when you walk into a room with a meeting and you sit down, like don't expect them to start the meeting right away. There has to be some period of small talk. Like, how are you today? Elijah, I heard about this thing. Like, wow, okay hey, that's really cool. And even if you don't mean it at all, like you still have to do that. And you have to think to yourself, 
a good part of this meeting is going to be incredibly slow and not relevant to the topic at all. And you just sort of have to let that flow. And so it takes a lot of effort because it would be as if you were from another country. Let's pick perhaps France, perhaps you're from Paris. And then you you move to America. Let's say you move to rural America. Like that's going to be a culture shock for you. And probably you're going to have to, you know, revise your expectations about how people interact and how they behave. And it's like that, but it's like that on a daily basis. So it ends up becoming quite tiring. But the rule book is incredibly helpful because then you don't offend people by mistake. That's fascinating. Is that something you're going to publish? Well, I wasn't thinking of that right now. Um, We also need a rule book in the other direction. So for a spoiler alert, I have like, I'm married to the most wonderful man ever, and he adores me so much, and I'm just still so, so thrilled. Well, he's the funniest person ever because he needs his own rule book. I feel like he's got a rule book. This is not easy to live with someone (laughs) like this, especially when I met him, I actually felt like he had a sixth sense. Like, not psychicness, but you know, it's kind of in that direction. Tuned in. Tuned in, yes. I just couldn't believe it at all. And that was before my own diagnosis, but it turns out that he would be the, like, the pure opposite of me because he's incredibly sensitive and intuitive. And that's a bit of a clash. So he has to have his own rule book that when I say certain things, I'm not being mean. <laughs> like, mm. If I abruptly have to end the conversation because something popped in my head and I have to go do it right away, I'll just be like, <laughs> okay, okay, bye. <laughs> and then I just have to walk out. And that's not because I, I'm not caring about him or what he's saying. <laughs> it's just I have to, I'm on my path. And you know, there's one more thing I'll mention about this, this condition is schedule is very important for some reason. Mm. Like I have to have a certain schedule and I have to adhere to that schedule. So if something comes up that removes from that schedule, my rule for myself is I have to take a deep breath and remind myself it actually doesn't matter at all. But he has to be aware that schedule is really important. So if I want to have dinner at a certain time, it's just, (laughs) sorry, it sounds really strange telling you all this, but like I really have to have dinner at that time or I need to know in advance that the time will be shifted. You know, one thing that I was super impressed with in your book, something that I think you figured out and a lot of people could learn from your example is cultivating community. And how that became such a critical part of your life. I was going to say work life and personal life, but just your life everywhere. Because it it occurred to me, like, you know, you would go on these big trips for work and you would bring colleagues along or your students along. And it was like there was this connection, this personal connection that seemed very powerful. And then you write a lot about the widow's club that you discovered after your first husband passed and how that became like this discovery of, hey, this is a really important way for me to kind of keep my bearings or find balance in my life. Could you talk to us about community and like how that helps you personally and professionally? Yes. Well, I'll first start with the time during the book where at one point, my first husband at the time, you know, he was the best friend I ever had. And he was maybe my only friend, actually, only really good friend, which is, it's a wonderful thing to have be married to your best friend. But as he was sick and, and terminally ill, I realized I was in really big trouble because I had, I didn't like, you know, who do re- you reach out to? Who will help support you and who will you connect with? And so I thought of my children as well, because what little family do have is very far away. I went about this really consciously and I looked at who my children interacted with a lot. Like we had a babysitter who was a family friend and her whole family became like our family. And the kids could go to her mom's house and they would all, you know, they would sleep overnight there. And so I like paid attention to what was working and what looked good. And I just invested in that. It sounds very formulaic in a way. And I had this, this other friend I met who was, I think, uh, oddly enough, quite seriously on the autism spectrum. And he actually told me how to make friends. He had like a way that he, and so I, I just kind of went from there. 
I managed to find friends and find something that I, I liked about people. It sounds all foreign to a lot of people because it just comes naturally to you. But being able to get this was like hugely eye-opening for me. And it was a wonderful experience. I actually don't think that it comes naturally. I'm speaking for myself that I didn't realize that community was so important until COVID-19. Oh, wow. And we're, we're isolated. You know, it feels like we're on our own little island and realized we only had one other family to communicate or like spend time with. But when you look back before coronavirus, can you see now that you did have a community? Or you didn't have one? I had a surface community, but not a, the depth of community that you really described in your book. That right. that was the thing that was so profound, is that it's not just like people that you'd meet with on a Friday evening for a cocktail, but like they know you. They know who you are. They know your story. Right. Well, I'm really so pleased that that you picked up on that. I feel like looking back, I was in my own pandemic, just me, you know? Mm -hmm. And now that the whole world is going through it, it's like I'm seeing this mass well, it is a mass pandemic, but everyone's having their own trauma now that normally you may not have ever had. It's like you said then, you only had one other family, but finding more of them and purposely investing in it, whether you call them even when you don't really feel like you need to talk to them or outreach somehow or just find fun things to do together, whatever that means. How do you think that manifests professionally for you too? Well, I'm working on a very exciting project right now. And it's a privately funded mission concept study. It's not an actual mission yet, but it's a study to go to Venus with a very small mission and to drop a probe into the clouds. And it's pretty crazy, but since Carl Sagan first thought of this 50 years ago, people love to imagine there's small life particles like microbes floating around in the, in the clouds where the temperature is, is right for life. And so for this mission, I had to pick my team for the study, study team, and I wanted really top people. But I also had to carefully think about constructing this community where there weren't any bullies or we tried to avoid older people who were very established in that particular field because they wanted to bring a fresh perspective. And what surprised me by this was how the community really got together, this small group of people. It's about 10 core people, and we have maybe 20, 30 you know, more loosely connected people. And this all happened during the pandemic. It's all online. It was just beautiful how this, you know, we all kind of knew each other, but just like you said, very a little bit, but professionally, we're, we're a team, we're a community, and something special just unfolded. In the book, you talk sort of towards the end of the book about the committee that you worked with a Starshade project on. And this project, feel free to correct me, but essentially you wanted to figure out a way to occlude the bright stars so that a telescope could see nearby planets. And what you write in the book is that despite our initial friction, our community found an, an undeniable chemistry. And I'm curious because there's this framework that's been around a long time that the psychologist Bruce Tuckman came up with. It. It's called forming, storming, norming, and performing, sort of these different phases the team goes through. I'm curious with this team, how did you make it past that sort of storming phase, that initial friction? Well, we had some pretty serious conflicts because everybody comes to the table with a certain sense of ownership of different parts of the project. And one of the people ended up backing out because the person, I think, felt very threatened. Once that person left, we overcame some of our friction. But it was also just getting to know each other. And we just by chance had the right mix of personalities. It turns out you really do need a very outspoken and provocative person. You need some tension. You need to get the discussion going for people to push the boundaries. And so one of the causes of friction was this outspoken person. That wasn't the one who left the team. But in the end, when people understood that her attitude wasn't personal, like she's not trying to attack you personally. It's just the way that she operates. That helped as well. So getting to know each other helped. We had a lot of in-person meetings and we'd go out for dinner afterwards. And I think a genuine respect 
for each other is really key. And we did. We had, I haven't had a team like that since before or since actually with that kind of level of chemistry. And I think having a, a topic that everybody is heavily invested in and committed to really makes all the difference. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DesignBetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash DesignBetter. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T-DESK.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about collaborating across disciplines and different areas of expertise. And in the book, you talk about that you're not a biochemist by training, but you weren't about to concern yourself with staying inside your field's arbitrary lines. You say, the physical world defies the borders we draw across it. If I saw something worth exploring, especially if it would help me find other life in the universe, you wanted to pursue it. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how maybe some of the best teams are willing to kind of blur the boundaries between their different areas of expertise? I think it's not just in science, but also from what I see from the outside in so many startups. Like if you have a great idea, you want to pursue that. And you can bring in other experts, it's true. But in order to lead that group, in order to make it happen, you yourself need to have some deep conceptual knowledge on the topic. I still do now pursue these new topics. And now we have the internet, there's online classes it's a lot easier, I think, to pick up a new skill to learn a subject or refresh on one that you might have learned something about before. But inherent in that is the permission to give it a shot. I have a friend who, he's a filmmaker, but he didn't study filmmaking at all. And I asked him one day, like, how do you make films? Why do you think that you can do that? And he said, well, I'm not the best at it, but I'm as good as the next person. And so I deserve a shot. And I wonder if, as you think about 
working across disciplines. Like, do you think about that? Like, hey, this isn't my area of expertise, but I'll give it a try. I do. I think there's a certain sense of willingness to take a risk and to fail and to look bad. Like there's a lot of times when I won't say I don't know what I'm talking about, but let's say it's in chemistry and the other people, they know I'm not a chemist and, you know, they're not expecting me to be an expert on it. But you know that you might ask a question or say something that just seems really dumb because it might be. But you have to be willing to put yourself out there in order to make the idea happen. So again, it's like that tension between how much do you want to do this and how much are you willing to risk? But I really like that story about your filmmaker friend. (laughs) Yeah, permission to try something new and to fail and to do better. There's a point in your book, if we could just sort of rewind to your kind of early childhood and kind of finding your way. There's a passage where things are pretty complicated in your youth. And then it sort of fast forwards and you are, I I believe, University of Toronto. Is that right? Where you, you got your undergrad? Right, right. And then you're in Harvard. And I wondered if you could fill in the gap because it seems like something magical must have happened along the way where you took a risk, went out on a limb and did something in college or you got some support. Something helped accelerate you forward out of a tricky spot in your youth. What was it that happened? The childhood was not really a main part of the book, so that's why I guess there's so many gaps. But one thing as a child was I was really pretty much left alone. And perhaps what might not have came out was, because I was from a broken home and there was a lot of bad things going on. But oftentimes, I don't know if my parents really knew what I was up to. And so I had a huge sense of independence. I lived in a city. I could take a subway. I could walk to school. So I wasn't, it wasn't like in the suburbs now, you need a car. So I could pretty much do what I want, go where I want. And so that sense of independence was always there. And I think that's what really helped accelerate me. And I was always a good student. Like I wasn't always paying attention or getting good grades, but I was able to take the thing I was good at, which was like science, when I realized I actually liked it. And I was able to go to university and find opportunities there. So I went to university and that was just a few blocks from my house. In Canada, it's quite different. You don't have to, like here, it's it's a whole other topic, right? But I think it's breaks my heart when I see that some high school students, they give up their entire life just so they can try to get into MIT or Princeton or Harvard. It's not like that in Canada. We don't have these elite schools and it's no standardized testing and things like that. So anyway, I did go to the university near my home and I got a summer opportunity to work at an observatory. And it was just amazing. It was didn't pay that well, but we didn't have a high tuition and lived at home. So our expenses weren't that great. But I got to, wow, awesome um, experience. Even though my actual work was very tedious, it, it opened my horizons. And so I just sort of followed this path and I joined a, there was this women in physics group. I remember it very clearly. They would have meet occasionally. And I remember some of these women were actually in graduate school. So then I heard about, oh, there's this thing called graduate school, which I didn't know about. And then I just started reading and applied places. So I don't know if it was just like one particular thing, but I was a good student and did well. And even today, a lot of a lot of the good universities, they're set up to encourage people to do summer internships, you know, that undergrads can get a crack at some kind of research. And so I was able to just find those opportunities and take advantage of them. So along the way, too, you, you talk in the book about some of the mentors that helped you. And you had a really nice line that says that the best mentors teach you not only where to look, but how to see. So for people that are looking for mentorship or looking to mentor people, talk to us about that. Why is that important? Well, most jobs, it turns out, and especially you know, in science, that's where I am, but I see it everywhere. They still have part of or a huge amount of apprenticeship kind of qualities to them. It's very hard to master anything or to make progress anywhere 
without a mentor to show you the ropes and to always nurture you along. So I do have friends in business where everyone has many mentors and peer mentors. So if you don't have that in your system, you have to seek it out. Like imagine you wanted to become the filmmaker. Like you probably wouldn't just go out and buy a video camera. I mean, you'd probably ask your friend for advice and he would give you some tips. What I did find really helpful though, is that the chemistry has to be right. Like it has to be someone who you like and who likes you. And just as a shout out to any women in tech, what I found by accident was that the men who have daughters or grown up daughters, they're likely to be an excellent mentor for you because they want their daughters to succeed and they kind of see you like a daughter at some level. So having that kind of relationship is really helpful. And I did. I did succeed partly because all of those wonderful mentors. Speaking of mentors, your father, you talk about him a fair bit in the book, and he seemed to have passed on a really amazing work ethic and kind of pushed you forward in many ways. Could you talk a little bit about work ethic, how you think about that and like how important that is to your life and your work? Yeah. And sometimes, you know, I do wonder, as we all do, about nature versus nurture. You know, the people who have a huge work ethic, is it because they were born that way? Or is it because they were lucky to happen upon a job that they just love and are obsessed with finding the answer or the solution? So I really don't know where it comes from. But my dad, he's not alive now, he was a a big believer in the power of positive thinking, imagining your life or thinking about what your actual goals are, and then making those goals bigger, and having a really concrete plan to reach those goals. That just doesn't sort of fall into your lap. Part of that is just being open to and recognizing opportunity and also being able to work hard to get there. He would always say, so you know how people always have these quotes or idioms they love? He'd always say, you know, Thomas Edison would say, 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. I'm curious too about how uh, sort of a little bit of a mischievous nature may have played into the kind of early formation of how science and, and creativity, and you talk early in the book about dropping objects off a balcony and getting caught for doing that. And then, you know, other other well-known physicists, you know, there's a bit of a mischievous streak in them, like Richard Feynman is kind of well-known for that. Why do you think that is that maybe sometimes creative folks embrace sort of a mischievous nature early in their childhood? I think there's a lot of things. I think one of them is just trying to understand how the world works, you know, by doing. And so it's like curiosity. I think that all kind of ties together. And then there's also the pushing boundaries. I mean, most kids do that, whether it's you know, being creative or doing something crazy or just pushing back on their their parents. So I think it all comes together. Curiosity, pushing boundaries, just to kind of see how far you can go and trying to just figure out how things work. I don't think we thought we were being mischievous, honestly. We were just trying to occupy our time with something that we were curious about. There are a few places in your career and in your life where there was a fork in the road where you've had some big opportunities kind of present themselves. And some of them are more obvious than others. Certainly, uh, MacArthur Genius Grant, that's sort of a fork in the road, not necessarily like there's a lot of things you can do with that opportunity. But are there opportunities that are maybe less obvious to readers of your book or even your students who know you better where you feel like that decision right there, whether that was logic or luck that drove that left or right turn, that changed everything? Can you think of some of those points in your career and, and how they changed you? An obvious one is I was in graduate school at Harvard and I was looking for a PhD thesis, something to work on that would define my doctorate. Typically, your advisor will give you a few choices. And he gave me this choice to work on this brand new field that was so new, exoplanets, planets orbiting stars other than the sun. And at the time, there were only a few. 
Now there's thousands, and we think every star has a planet. But back then, it was very controversial. People didn't believe it. And so it was a choice. Do I do this topic that's, wow, is brand new, like it's brand new topic, or do I not do it because it's just could be nothing. I mean, it could be nothing. It could go away and not be anything. That was one. That was a more direct one. I feel like I'm going through one right now because there's something I've wanted to do for a very long time. It can help men too, but it has primarily due to empowering women who, if you have women friends or nieces or nephews or children, like for some reason, women have a huge lack of confidence. There's this thing called imposter syndrome and they it's so limiting, actually. It's, to me, the biggest limitation. You can talk about you know, sexism or unconscious bias, and I've always wanted to do something about it. And I'm in the process of like trying to do something big with this. And an opportunity presented itself, <laughs> oddly enough, by someone who wanted to interview me for a podcast. And so I looked this person up, and I'm like, I wonder if I should float my idea by this person. And it turned out this person, her name is Somi Ariane, She's kind of building this big movement. And so now I have an opportunity to be a part of this movement to kind of embed my ideas like a cornerstone in this whole thing. So I'm still kind of thinking about that now. But, you know, one of the questions for all of us is, do we use emotion or logic in our decisions? And which one is better or worse for a given situation? Because there's something like you really want to do, but is this really practical? And then there's the thought that I'm a big believer in is to listen to your inner voice. And so when there's a fork in the road, like if it's something that you just feel excited about, you know, that really makes you think. I think there's a lot of opportunities like that that we don't realize because we're so used to just like being on our phones and having information given to us. We're not as in touch with our ourselves. But if something comes up with you and you're like, wow, okay, it makes you stand up. I think that's something you need to start thinking about harder and whether you can do something with it. We definitely have a lot of listeners in our audience, women of influence and influential position, and also a lot of people who are early in their career too. Is there a place where they can go learn about what you're working on or perhaps pitch in? Well, they can look up Somi, S-O-M-I-A-R-I-A-N, and she has this growing movement. She calls it Think Tank, and she's working on this bigger thing. And I can't say much about what I'm doing now because it's still in formulation phase, but I just have two distinctive tools that will help people gain confidence and overcome imposter syndrome. That's fantastic. It's great. Well, Sarah, we'd love to kind of wrap up the podcast, just talking about your work right now and what are you excited about with pending discoveries or opportunities? And you mentioned the Venus Project. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about that as well. Yes. Well, I like to think of Venus as the ignored sibling. I don't know if you are siblings or, you know how in a family, there's usually that one kid who gets all the attention. And then there's one who usually gets ignored. Well, in our family here of Earth, Venus, and Mars, Mars gets all the attention. Whereas Venus... It's not the thing you really think of when you think of an exciting planet. And here in the U.S., we have not sent a mission to Venus in decades, whereas we, you know, one of our missions will be landing on Mars very soon. So it turns out Venus is incredibly mysterious. We believe it might have started out like Earth, with an ocean and with a nice climate for life. It might have even had life early on. But it went through a runaway greenhouse where it got hotter and hotter and hotter, and eventually the oceans evaporated, leaving Venus to be a, it's like a death planet. Like the surface of Venus is so hot, no life of any kind could survive there. But over half a century ago, Carl Sagan posited that, you know, in the clouds of Venus, the temperatures are not too hot, not too cold, but just right for life. And perhaps there's some kind of life floating around in the clouds. Like on our own Earth, we have life that temporarily lives in the clouds, bacteria that are swept up from the surface. And so the thought of uh, life on Venus 
it's been a quite fringe. It's like a fringe topic. We have a phrase in science, or in perhaps it exists in your world too, that an idea has to pass the giggle factor. So if you tell someone an idea and they laugh, it's not, it's not legit. Well, this is becoming more and more kind of accepted thing to study. And there's been huge renewed interest in Venus lately. And so the mission concept that my team's working on, we're working on several different concepts. Think of it as like small and cheap, medium and more expensive and large and slower and even more expensive. And the first opportunity we have is to go with Rocket Lab. They're a private commercial spaceflight company that sends small payloads into orbit. And they're going to be sending a rocket to Venus in, in 2023. And we've teamed up with them to help choose a very small instrument. And a probe would drop down through the atmosphere. And we'll look for signs of life by way of gases that don't belong. We might be able to investigate the cloud particles, which are not water, but they're a very nasty substance called sulfuric acid. But we can probe those particles and see what's inside of them. It's fascinating. Venus is, is very volcanic too, right? It is volcanic, and it does have active volcanoes now, but it's not overly so. It's not like there's always things, you know, volcanoes erupting in like a Mount Vesuvius type of way. It's just small kind of outgassing. I've been intrigued by Venus since I was a kid, since reading a short story. I think it was Ray Bradbury who wrote about the distant future, and, and Venus had been terraformed, and, and the sun only came out once a year there, and there was the story about a kind of a... Uh, a kid in an elementary school who bullies locked him in the closet during the one day the sun came out. And there's just something very <laughs> poignant about that that stuck with me. Wow, I'll, I'll have to read that story. Thanks for mentioning that. What about exoplanets that you're excited about that our listeners should be aware of? Well, we do have a big change coming. There's a special telescope called the James Webb Space Telescope. And we used to call that the next generation space telescope as it's going to be the next thing after Hubble. It's like the next space telescope. And the James Webb will be launching in later this year, actually. And we've been waiting for it for a decade or more. Actually, it was conceived of decades ago. And the James Webb Space Telescope will be like a super powerful Hubble, although it operates at infrared wavelengths. And it will be orbiting very far from Earth. It'll be operating very far from Earth, where it's quiet and dark and very cold. And this James Webb Space Telescope will be able to study the atmospheres of small rocky planets planets that are also orbiting very small stars. And so today we can study the atmospheres of hot giant planets primarily. And so we're able to take like a leap in technology to get us to the next level. And when we look at these atmospheres of small planets, we're going to look for water vapor as an indication of liquid water oceans needed for all life as we know it. And it's kind of among our wildest dreams that with the James Webb Space Telescope, we could find gases in a planet atmosphere that don't belong, that are there in, in huge quantities that we might be able to attribute to life. So I'd say that's the number one thing we should be looking forward to in the coming few years. It's very exciting. Yeah, Sarah, well, thank you so much for being on our show. We, we look forward to following your work, hearing about more exoplanet discoveries, and who knows, maybe even life outside our planet sometime in the, in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. 